Ube Chats, UBE, Unlocking Brown Egos, your podcast with two authors destigmatizing mental health access and mental health disparities to the Filipinx American youth and Filipinx American community all over the world. And we are your co hosts, Chachi Ibarra and Maylene Mamarado. And if today's episode resonated with you, feel free to let us know at anchor.fm slash ubechats and send us a voice message. Well, let's listen to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Ube Chats, your Unlocking Brown Egos, your podcast to destigmatize mental health within the Philippinex community. And today we have Nell. Well, well, going by they, their pronouns. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hello, everybody. Yeah, so like Marlene said, my name is Nell Garcia, they, them pronouns. I'm 24 years old, and I recently graduated from UC Davis with a major in sociology and a minor in Asian American studies. I was heavily involved with the Bulosan Center as well during my time in UC Davis. If you're not aware of the Bulosan Center, you should go check them out. We are a research, education, and advocacy center focusing our energy, research, and work on the Philippines diaspora, Filipino diaspora, um, as well as elevating issues both for Filipinos in the United States, the Philippines, and elsewhere abroad. I'm an aspiring ethnic studies teacher, and my dream is to be an ethnic studies professor in the future, at least work in education. Right now, I'm in the process of uh, discerning and applying for grad school um, while I intern for Dr. Rodriguez, our Bulosan Center founder, and I also part-time at a coffee shop because coffee is one of my favorite hobby and going back to coffee was something that I wanted to do after college. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Uh, I like to say that I'm your local barista babe slash ethnic studies educator. So yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. I love the coffee. Personally, I can't take in a lot of coffee because my sense, my caffeine sensitivity is extremely high. So one like little cup of fills, I'm not going to bed anytime soon. So shout out to you, Nell, for being a really cool barista. But yeah, if you also are looking for like San Jose coffee recommendations, I got you as well. Just hit me up. <laughs> cool, cool. Do you up. So for Chachi, can you take to the next question then? Why did you get into your major? To talk about why I got into my major, I was a sociology major. And it's kind of a long story. I guess the summary for this is the reason why I wanted to go into sociology was to make sense of my own experience. As a diaspora Filipina, Filipinec person, for those who don't know, after high school, I'd moved back to the Philippines, actually. I was 17 years old. I studied at a university there for two, three years before withdrawing for mental health reasons. Um, and then I moved back to the United States. And being someone who was raised Phil-Am, um, in a not very Filipino community and then going to the homeland and then coming back left me with a lot of questions about my own identity, about my own experience, about what it means, you know, to be affected by social structures, social norms and culture. You know, we talk about culture most of the time as like, what is our food? What is our dance? But we often forget that culture and social norms are things that are embedded. It's even our values. It's the ways we move in this world. Um, and so for me, having come from the Philippines and before then, having my own identity crisis as a Philam um, in the United States, I think I kind of was just like, you know, if I'm gonna go back to school, which takes a lot of my energy, I better be putting my energy into something that's gonna make the world make more sense for me and help me move um, in a way. 
Um, I also went into sociology because I, you know, I'm very invested in social justice. I really want to align my work, um, whether it be like my actual career or like my time on the side, I really want to align my work to social issues and sociology to a degree. So that is why I went into sociology. And then I also picked up an Asian American studies minor when I got to Davis, obviously, because, you know, Asian American studies and ethnic studies more broadly. I say this a lot, but ethnic studies is healing. What do I mean by that? Is ethnic studies makes you study and engage with things um, from your positionality as a person of color in the United States, in you know broadly the Western world. And for me, not only was that something that was enlightening to be able to get to study like my own experience and centuries of Filipino Asian American experiences, but it was healing because you know when you sit in an ethnic studies classroom, what's different, at least in my experience, is that. The professors and the educators who do ethnic studies, they always bring the questions back to you. Ethnic studies is a reflective practice. It's a pedagogical practice. And so for me, it was very, very healing. Not only was I studying and putting my energy into understanding things that are relevant to my community, but I was also then in a classroom being challenged to ask, like, how does this shape my own experience? So I think more broadly, the yeah, like when I think about it, going into both sociology and Asian American studies, it was a way for me, you know, to to harness education, um, get my degree and fulfill a goal that I had like, you know, for my own reasons, being someone who I can get into this later, who was diagnosed with a mental health condition, you know, getting a degree was something that I thought I couldn't do. And yet going to SOCH, going to ASA, not only did I get that degree, not only was I able to fulfill that goal, but I walked away with a lot more knowledge about myself and how I want to move in this world. That was so much fire. You can keep going. I would totally be up to that. That was so insightful now. And I really did appreciate that. And I really did love how you mentioned that ethnic studies is healing, especially for people of color folks, because I think for a lot of us, we did not know who we were. We weren't really passionate about the community until we got to college, because that's the only place you can learn about it. Mm-hmm. So I honestly so appreciate that and honestly your huge why into why you're doing what you do and I think that honestly just leads into your the next question we have because we both me and Chachi know you both had your own unique mental health journey in your higher education experience so and people don't think education is mental health healing but how does your profession whether it's in education sociology or what you do at Belosan Center supports the mental health needs of our Mm, that's a really good question I guess I'll start with when we think about mental health needs, right? Just broadly speaking, you bring it up in conversation. Most of the time people, you know, they mention therapy, they mention medication, they mention treatment and programs, which are very much, you know, they're they're very much needed responses to mental health. But on the other hand, I think one thing that I, I wish I could quote this, a friend of mine quoted someone, but the... The TLDR was that we in the West, so when we talk about therapy, we talk about medication, we talk about treatment, those are things that are absolutely like valid responses and sometimes very necessary response mental health. But in the West, I'm, I'm paraphrasing from something that my friend quoted, there's a Western and dare I say a capitalist outlook on mental health that really takes away the communal aspect of mental health and healing. When we talk about mental health, mental health issues as medical, it really puts the onus on the individual. 
the individual has to get treatment, the individual has to get medication. But at the end of the day, one of the most important foundational things to support people have mental health issues. And I'm not just talking about like diagnosed disorders, everyone who has, you know, a mental health dip. It's always, always, always community. Strongest response. We're social creatures. We're wired to be in community, to be with other human beings. And so this brings me to, to my work with Bulosan Center. Bulosan Center, man, I could go on and on about Bulosan, but I, if I were to sum up Bulosan in, in a phrase, it's radical love, radical support, radical community. Not just in politics, but the way that we treat people. You know, when I first went into Bulosan Center, I was terrified. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a whole research center. There's a whole internship. I gotta, I gotta put my best on and I gotta make sure I only show my best because I wanna be part of this community. I walked into my first meeting, they were blasting Nikki, dancing and eating pizza. You know, and they're like, yo, what's up? How you doing? And that energy was what permeated my entire Bulosan experience, not just in person, but when we expanded, you know, to online. And this brings me, my long-winded way of saying, this brings me to my answer to the question, is this overall attitude in Bulosan Center that, that comes from a very loving place, feel, you know, regardless of the teams that you're on in Bulosan, regardless of the program, you're surrounded by a community and mentors and team leaders who look at you as a human being. I think one of the most important aspects that Bulosan Center has to its program is that they really highlight the wellness of their interns. You know, we're really, really regularly checking in with people. And so when I had the opportunity to become a team lead in the summertime and then also co-lead a sub-team, one thing that was really on my mind wasn't just like, what is the programming that I want to do? What are the things I want my interns to do? My thought when I first got the opportunity to be a team lead was, how do I make sure that my interns get the same level of care and support that I got when I first got into the center. You know, for me, when I was leading a team, I, I got to lead a team on transnational research and activism. What we did was we engaged with Filipino homeland issues. At that time, it was the anti-terror law. Um, we were also discussing connections between the carceral systems in the United States and the Philippines. This was around the time, you know, the abolition was really picking up an online discourse. Um, so we engaged with how did American colonialism, for example, shape policing in prisons in the Philippines. And so while I'm, I'm naming these sort of things, you know, at first it could just sound like, okay, they're doing social issues. Um, but at the end of the day, when, when my interns were doing this work, they were making connections between their own experiences, between the things that they're seeing broadly in the world um, and the homeland and what's going on in the homeland. Um, this, brings, this brings me to, to what I said about like, you know, ethnic studies and engaging with ourselves and our communities and our ancestors as healing. Because I think that when we embrace, when we embrace what's going on, when we really engage with what is going on, it brings us to a deeper understanding of who we are. I'm thinking about this quote from, from a book, Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Rebai. It's a YA novel um, about a Filipino-American uh, kid who goes back home. And I'm gonna butcher this quote so bad, but he basically says something about like, I cannot claim this country without claiming what goes on there. I cannot claim to be, I cannot claim this, this place, this people and deny what's going on there. Um, and so I think, um, oh, this has nothing to do with mental health, but I'm gonna keep going. 
Um, but I think like there was something very transformative about that for my interns. Um, and that opened them up to a process of not just examining the broader community, but also examining how they were doing. Because keeping in mind, you know, we were doing this work um, several months into the pandemic. We were still isolated. We were still just like only interacting with other human beings as these squares on screens and nothing else. Um, and so to kind of meet each other um, doing this work, you know, sooner or later, I feel like that was grounds to build community. And so as we were doing this work, I really tried my best to make sure that I checked in with everyone. I required one-on-one check-ins with me, you know, and even Kuya Wayne was like, you know, you don't have to do that. I think like, you gotta like, like if you need to, you know, protect your energy, if you need to like, you know, take up time for yourself, that's okay. You don't gotta check in with everyone. But for me, I wanted to check in with everyone, not just so I could see how they were doing, but it was also healing for me, you know, getting to connect with each and every person um, was really, really important to me. And so when I was checking in with interns, you know, we were talking about like, okay, what are your goals in this internship? What sort of issues do you want to engage with? But I was also asking, I was like, how is this pandemic for you? Is there anything that, you know, I need to know so I can better support you? And I had interns who were like, I've never done an internship where it sounded like they cared so much, you know? And I was also telling my interns too, when I was saying like, listen, ground, like, like this was rule number one, day one. I was like, if you need time for yourself, if you need space for yourself, if you need to step back, tell me. I will always be checking in on your capacity um, to, to know whether or not you wanna do something. Um, and you know, we throw all the word capacity around and fill out spaces all the time because you know, it's like, do you have the capacity for this? Do you have the capacity for that? Um, but I had, a, I had a wrap up check-in with one of my interns and I will never forget this, is one of my interns had said, you know, no, this was one of the first times where I had a lead ask me if I had the capacity for something. But I felt like they were asking me that because they genuinely wanted to know how I was and not, do I need to give this assignment to somebody else? Um, and that was really touching for me to hear, um, you know, because I think, it's really, really important that, you know, even in our workspaces, when we're, when we have to take a step back to, to be reminded that, that us taking a step back centers our wellness and it's not a failure on our part to produce. And it's not a failure on our part to show up. It's really just like, you know, there, there's something very affirming um, and I think that was very, very important, especially during the time when we were doing this internship um, in COVID. Because, you know, everyone was dealing with so many different things. Um, there were people with housing issues. There were people whose mental health issues, me included, were going off through the roof. You know, people were, you know, grieving family and community and worried for their safety. And to me, if I'm to look around at what's going on in the world right now, like, the very least I can do is ask, how are you holding up? You know, and it sounds like such a very basic thing, like, hey, how are you doing? Or like, do you have the capacity for this? But like, I say this because I've been on that end and I had my own mentors doing that with me too during this process. I was like, hey, how are you? I think we really, really, I think we don't give enough credit to a genuine how are you. And this brings me back to my point about community and mental health. I can take however many meds I want. I could go to how many, 
however many programs. I could sit in the ward again for how many more days, you know, but nothing will make me feel more seen and grounded in myself than another human being being like, I see you and I see, and I recognize that your experience might not just be what you're presenting right now. Um, yeah, <laughs> words. Um, I hope that kind of trailed back to the initial question of how did my work do mental health? Um, but yeah, TLDR is just like, it's witnessing. You know, it's witnessing and making people feel witnessed. Because I think when we talk about mental health, one of the biggest things um, that comes up for us is, you know, not to bring that, that word that comes up with film discussions all the time, but shame. You know, mental health, not even just in the Filipino community, mental health is a thing that brings up shame and embarrassment for people. And for us to be able to say like, you are a faceted human being and you are being, you're being affected by all these many other things, broadly, society, the sociology majors coming out of me, you know? But like, it's, it's really all about honoring the range and the humanity of people um, when it comes to mental health. And I think that's why it was so grounding to be able to check in on people, hear how they're doing and get checked in on myself. Um, but yeah, I think I'm running out of It's totally okay. You're spinning fire. You're spinning fire. Sachi, go. <laughs> you definitely are. And I think when one you were moment, on. I zone out because I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't stop reflecting back. Like when I was, when I remembered my intern need, like she would always ask the same questions. Um, and like, that is true. Um, the genuine experience that I guess never experienced when I did internships here um, and that was something that was really different um, with the spirit of being at the Bolosan and being here in, in this it's just there's this kind of like difference and like you kind of like uh, having this uh, like I don't know how I, I I'm lost at words, but um, you're just explaining it and like your passion for it and your drive. I could like just zoom zoom in into like ten years from now and like hearing your future students like they'll be really in touch or we're in touch because it's something that we want as a professor, as a leader, and as someone that really genuinely genuinely cares for those around her. And I think. I guess tying into the next question now is I know that our experiences are shaped with what happened to us like previous years so what is your perception of mental health when you were in your youth in comparison to now as you are a young adult? I think when we when we think about how mental health and mental illness um, is depicted in, in Filipino culture um, and I can only speak it from my experience because Filipino culture is so broad. Um, you know, you you hear things like yan, a broken in the head, or like, you know, you see sometimes, you know, unfortunately, an unhoused person, given their situation and their circumstance, you see the effects of that on people. And people then say, like, oh, these homeless people, and I don't like that language. I'd like to center the person, unhoused person. Like, oh, these homeless people are crazy. You know, the first, the when I think about it, the first experiences I had with mental illness or hearing about it, it was always in tandem with another marginalized population. 
Um, you know, and then there's also, you know, expressions, um, you know, sira uluka, stuff like that. Um, that was that was more mainly like how I was first introduced to the idea and the topic. Um, I remember though, growing up, I think I was in around third grade. Um, a friend of my mother's or, or an acquaintance of my mother's told my mother that, that she had bipolar disorder. And this is the first time I'd heard of it. I was like seven years old. I was like, mama, what's that? And my mom was like, oh, it's, um, it's like an illness in your brain and it makes your moods change and you get very, very emotional. Um, and I really give credit to the way my mom framed that. Um, I, never, I never was just like, oh, there's something like super wrong with that person. But again, I think what helped was the fact that I had known that person. I'd experienced being in the presence of and in community with that person. And so I just want to say, like, I, I wonder all the time how I might have viewed my mother's friend if I had known about the diagnosis first and not the person. I think that's very, very important. Um, moving forward with that, um, you know, I in high school and in middle school, um, I started being exposed to mental health issues more and more. I had classmates and friends. Um, you should probably just put a trigger on in here, but I had classmates and friends, you know, um, they would injure themselves. Um, they were depressed. They would talk about ending their own lives. And for me, I think that was, I don't know, all I could say was I was really, really exposed to these sort of things. And it wasn't long until around seventh grade. Um, I think around seventh grade is when I first started feeling what I, in retrospect, would now call depression. Um, I would have these periods in middle school and in high school. Um, I would feel depressed. Um, I would hurt myself. Um, and the thing about this was that um, my, my parents had found out. My parents had found out that I was hurting myself. And this was still very early on in our journey, both me and my parents, our journey making sense of mental health. And I remember them just being like, why are you doing this? you know, they were shocked. They didn't know how to handle it. Um, I remember my mom would be like, you know, I'm trying to Google this stuff. Why do you do it? I don't understand. Um, and it was tense, you know, like not, not just because of the, the topic matter, but because, you know, when you're a teenager or a preteen, there's, there's so many other reasons why you don't feel like you can be transparent with your parents and, and to this day, you know? Um, and I think that dynamic would come back again and again and again because I would relapse into depression and I would relapse into hurting myself. Um, and I think there was, there, was a, there was a fear. There was a fear that my parents had, obviously, because I know now they love me. I'm, I'm their kid, I'm their firstborn. And as a parent, you don't wanna see, you, you, you don't wanna even fathom of your own child going through something like that. And now that I'm older, I see in retrospect that all the times that they would react violently or react loudly um, came from a place of fear. And it took a really, really, really long time for me to make sense of that and depersonalize that. I don't think, uh, and also I, I, was, I wanna say, I don't think it, the onus falls on the child nor anyone. It, the onus should never fall on the person with a condition or with a problem to explain it to people who want to support them. Um, but 
I, I feel very, very grateful for the experiences that I've had um, that have brought me to this understanding of it. Um, to, to go back to, to how this, this happened with my parents, um, you know, I, I think the very last time that I, that my parents had been aware of something going on with me was, was in my junior year of high school or sophomore year of high school. Um, and I remember having a very, very strong anxiety attack. I, I was in bed. I didn't want to get up. And then my, my, my parents had called me and they were like, well, not time to eat, you know? And I was just like, I, 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 I'm not getting out of bed. I don't want to go. You know, all I wanted was to be left alone, to, to just be in my room, you know? Um, but at that time, I think that that scared them. And so my parents took my phone away. They took my laptop away because they thought that me talking to people online was what was causing it. They made me sleep in their room. It was all the things looking back that I that I didn't that you know that that people with an anxiety attack don't need. Um, but that happened, and and because that happened, I I made it to the next day. But because that happened, I think there was a blockage in me. I didn't want to I didn't want to tell my parents what was going on anymore. But fast forward to to college, I was in the Philippines at that time. Um, I had a very similar anxiety attack. Um, and I remember the first thing that came in my head was this again? I thought I was done with it. Like I had relegated mental health issues to, to my teen years. I was like, oh, it's just something that happened to me because I had a weird teenage life. But no, there I was 19 years old, frozen in my bed. And I just had this thought. I, I cannot tell you how it came to my mind, but I was like, you know what, at this point, I'm saying that I need an answer. I want to get checked. Um, and so obviously, well, not obviously, but what I ended up doing after was telling my parents, I was like, yo, I think I need to see a psychiatrist. Um, and I think that idea had come to me because I had several friends in college there in the Philippines who had, um, diagnoses. And so I want to highlight as well is that being in community with people who had diagnoses normalized that for me. And so I went to the doctor and my mom, actually my mom flew back to the Philippines to be with me when I went to the doctor, shout out to my mama. Um, and I did a test. I told the doctor, I was like, this is what happens to me. You know, I thought, I didn't think I had depression because I have lapses and then it goes away. At that point I was like, depression is, depression is when people are just always depressed. There's nothing wrong with me, um, but yeah. At that doctor's appointment, uh, the doctor told me, he was like, it seems you have symptoms of bipolar disorder. Have you heard of it before? When I think back, I was like, oh, that was the very first uh, mental health diagnosis I was ever exposed to as a child, when I think back at my mom's friend. Um, and it was something that um, a friend of mine in college um, had had or has, and they were very, very vocal about it. And so I remember just sitting there and honestly, I felt relieved um, hearing that. I felt very relieved. Um, for me, there was, there was an explanation. And for me, an explanation was enough. Because I think going through these bouts, I would just feel like there was something wrong with me. And I can touch on that later, how diagnoses obviously can, can shape that. But 
obviously when you when you feel like you don't have a diagnosis for some people it can deepen their shame because they feel like a defective human being when there's no explanation and so for me having an explanation um was enough and what i appreciate was that the psychiatrist then then went on and was like you know actually like bipolar disorder is something that so many people have a lot of creative people have had it Carrie Fisher, who plays Princess Leia, she has bipolar disorder. I believe Ernest Hemingway, like the author, I believe he had this bipolar disorder. If you could Google it, you could just open your phone right now. You type celebrities with bipolar disorder. There's gonna be a long, long list and you are gonna know names there. And so there was something about that that was comforting to me. Cause I was like, okay, yeah, these people, these people, they have, they have what I have. And I like them, I idolize them, I'ma be fine, you know? Um, and so I think like that was the first step in my journey that I'm still on to this day, trying to make sense of what a diagnosis is for me. But that was the first step for me um, because my perception of, of a mental health disorder, if I could like sum, summarize it, right? It was like, at first growing up, I was like, oh, it's something that's very, very bad and wrong. And then as I was growing up, more and more people in my life, or I was witnessing more and more people in my life be moved by and move with mental health issues from high school to college. Um, and so now when I think back at it, um, you know, my, my journey since then, I wish I could just end this room and be like, the end, I got a diagnosis and I have peace, but no. Um, that brought a whole nother set for me, to be honest. Um, where do I go? Where do I start with this? It's on my heart and I'm trying to find the words for it. I think having a diagnosis at that time, it was something that was helpful, um, but it also brought another set of challenges. It went from why are these things happening to me to how do I give myself the freedom to be more than a diagnosis? Does that make sense? Because on one hand, when you get an explanation for it, all of a sudden it's like, okay, cool, I'm not crazy. Oh, I'm doing this well. I'm just, I'm just being bipolar, you know? But then on the other hand, and this is something that you know people with diagnoses debate debate about all the time. It's a very highly personal thing. Um, but in my experience, I've had to now unlearn what it meant to be more than a diagnosis. Um, and even, even literally today, I was thinking about this because I caught myself. Um, mental health is something that is not just, it, it, it can't just be put in a box, in, in a checklist of symptoms. Yes, like a checklist of symptoms can be very, very helpful and it can help people get the types of treatment and intervention and explanation that they need. But what I'm learning now, growing like like growing from that, I think uh, five years after getting diagnosed, I'm recognizing that it's like these symptoms, quote unquote, that I have of being down or being depressed or being very energetic or my mind is racing. Symptoms do not point necessarily to a root. You can say that you're biologically wired to a thing, right? But at the end of the day, it's it's our life experiences, it's the traumas, it's the, it's the, yeah, it's the scary things, the hard things that we have to move through 
that affect our body, that affect our brain chemistry. And so now that I'm older, when I think about mental health, it's, it's not just what did the things that you go through do to you? It's how do you make sense of the things that might have brought you to this place? Because um, I, I had to go from like a medical model um, for, for like, I, I think two or three years, actually. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a little bit backwards. But after I got my diagnosis, um, I was just put on meds. And that was that. Uh, keeping in mind, this is the Philippines um, and, and mental health in the Philippines. Um, is in and of itself not universally accepted as a concept, you know? Um, and the, men the mental health um, medical system there, um, much like the United States, um, you know, it very much focuses on the medical aspects of it. Um, also, I just want to plug, there's only like 50 psychiatrists in the Philippines. There's only like 50 psychiatrists in the Philippines. Um, and so my experience was very much also shaped by the systems um, there and the attitudes there. Anyways, where was I going on with this? But, so I went on a very, very medical pathway. Medication, that's it. It, it honestly got worse for me. Um, and, and I had to move back. I had to move back to, to the United States because I reached a certain dip. I reached a very, very low point. Um, and it was then that I started therapy. And the thing about therapy and medication in with mental health issues is that you can't really have, well, I don't want to say you can't, is that they work in tandem with each other and they do different things. Medication can keep your symptoms at bay, but therapy and talking about it, not even just, you know, seeing a medical professional, but even sometimes, you know, when you're in community, talking about these things, you're able to get a sense of and ground in things that have happened to you and to validate that because at the end of the day the things that have happened to you when your body remembers what happened to you and you're flashed into that moment even when it's not happening anymore that's what can cause sometimes um these symptoms and, and again just disclaimer this is this is a highly variable thing and i cannot speak for everyone with mental health um diagnosis or mental health issues um but uh, where was it going with that? I was trailing off. I think the TLDR of what I'm trying to say is that, you know, mental health isn't just your biology. Your biology can be a part of it, but, but mental health is affected by every tiny little thing, even the things you might not even remember. Mental health isn't just a disease. It's not just a condition. It's not whether or not you have your life together. Mental health, excuse me, mental health is shaped by your interactions with people, your thoughts about yourself, how you make sense of the world. And so that's why I, I'm very, very adamant about making sure that we humanize these issues and not just look at it from a medical lens. Because looking at it from a medical lens and, and really only narrowing these things down to, to illnesses, which they don't even say that, to illnesses or symptoms, it not only takes away the fact that human that a human being with their range and their experience went through something and is now navigating something that that unseen can feel like a whole world a whole universe you know to boil that down to a diagnosis or to boil that down to 
to a character fault or a biological flaw, that just that just doesn't cut it. And it and it will never, it will never encompass the entire human experience. To to think of mental health as a solely medical thing is very dehumanizing. Um, and it doesn't give grace. It doesn't give us grace to be messy, to be to, to be healing, because healing isn't linear, you know? Um, and so yeah, I guess like <laughs> to 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 sum it up is that my as I've grown and as I've experienced and been in community with folks, is that I just my 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 perception of mental health just keeps broadening and it keeps humanizing. And at the end of the day, it just it's but another aspect of how we're learning to navigate this world. It's not just someone has a problem with them. It's someone is trying to move through this world and things have happened to them and they're trying to survive and make sense of that. So how do we as a community treat that? How are we gonna treat that? If we were to take away diagnoses, if we were to say, hey, so-and-so is going through something. So-and-so had this happen to them and and their body remembers that experience. And so that comes up for them. How do we show up for those people? It's not just throwing medication at them. It's showing up and being like, hello, fellow human, I see you. And I recognize that there's a range of things that have happened to you. And there must be a range of ways that you could possibly be navigating that. And so the only way to really fully understand that is to talk is to understand and be in community with them. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you are definitely fine. And I give you hands down respect um, for, for, what, for what you have said. I know you're truly called to share this. And, and I think even with your experience and I didn't know that um, you actually went back home to the homeland to go to school and having that experience really creates a whole new perspective because being raised as a Phil Am and then getting that experience of like going to school in the homeland. So I'm sorry, I'm just trailing back to like the no. beginning. <laughs> um, but um, it, it's important to have this kind of like perception because sometimes we don't sometimes someone in the diaspora may not realize that it's it, it's really hard in the homeland like we talk about it in here in the diaspora but in the homeland it's it's hard um, mental health is not it's not really as talked about or it's hard because the poverty level is just really really bad but I think one thing that you mentioned that I, I wanted to actually emphasize a lot and like and also on the doc if you if you are following along with us we're like taking notes that's why we're just like you're on fire <laughs> um is is this what you said um mental health is not only your body but every little thing is not a disease and it's shaped by the interaction of, with people and the world and I think with how we're living today especially like we're in a global pandemic and it's hard when like there's so many social issues coming at you and then people are trying to get away from it and then there's this lack of perception of like how about how is that person feeling is are they doing it with intention or with, in, with 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 a reason why because 
there's a lot of things that is happening and sometimes it's hard to explain and only and you brought up a really good point of like if we see the diagnosis first before the person how can how is it much better to treat one another it would make so much difference and i i really wanted to like emphasize that because i think right now i think we just need to be a little kinder to everyone around us i agree i agree you know that that actually makes me think of um something that happened to me today my coworker was shaking an order and you know there's the standard how's your week going and, and the customer said you know honestly i'm up for a very sad reason um my son was just diagnosed with bipolar disorder i shit you not y'all this happened to me today and i remember just being like oh my goodness and like the fear that this woman had in her eyes and the the, the pain that was on her face i remember seeing it and then in a split second i was like okay i'm gonna hand this woman her drink and i see how scared she is and it made me think like oh my gosh my parents probably went through this you know and so i handed her her drink today and i was like you know ma'am i was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when i was 19 and her eyes just went wide and i'm still processing this but the first thing she said to me was oh my god look at you you're thriving you're okay you're wonderful hearing that woman that very first reaction that she had was, oh my gosh, this person in front of me has the diagnosis that my son was just handed and they are okay. And they are quote thriving. But that made me be like, you know what? All the things that I tell myself that I have to be doing better because I frame myself sometimes is just bipolar. Like, ooh just me showing up and being myself that in and of itself is thriving and that makes me think you know the relief that that woman probably had probably comes from those things of what does a diagnosis mean to her what does it mean to her to learn that her son was handed this label and this explanation and the fact that she needed relief from that tells me that there's so much more work to be done there's so much more unpacking to be done. But honestly, I relate to you all so much because actually a fun fact about me now is that I actually was considered an atypical child growing up because I had severe um, anxiety when I was a child and I couldn't like, how do I say this? I couldn't work with like the other kids in school. So I honestly relate to a lot of what you're saying. It's so damn hard. Like it's already a hard enough to get like the diagnosis out of the way, but then like when it's close to operating with others, it's like, that's a whole nother struggle that we can talk about another time. Here to validate you that I can totally relate to that. And honestly, here's the thing though about Belosone Sounder, we are the biggest Avatar The Last Airbender nerds. I think you all made me the bigger fan. <laughs> so I think as of now, we're running out of time, but is there any like last minute closing things you want to say to anyone, I guess, like how to be a better advocate for mental health or anyone struggling with these issues at a young age who just doesn't know how to navigate it? I guess just, just things that I would tell my younger self. Let's go from there. Just things I would tell my younger self and things that I try to even tell myself today when I wake up out of bed is one, be kind to yourself. We say that all the time. 
but how often do we do that? Be kind to yourself. And that's something I still have to work on myself. I can stand here and soapbox about being kind to yourself, but I will admit that's the biggest thing I struggle with is be kind to yourself. Second, healing is not linear. Healing is not linear, which sounds like such a, such a, you know, like a common sense thing. But I think, you know, when, especially when we're dealing with mental health issues and the shame that that brings up and the negative thoughts and negative judgments that those bring up when we're experiencing these things, um, you know, it's, it's hard to not beat ourselves up when things happen again. And I just want to like really emphasize again, because this is something that to this day, today while driving my car, I had to remind myself this was that healing is not linear. And lastly, it's just like, at the end of the day, you're a human being. And to be human is to have an infinite range of experiences of who you are and can be. And so just, just never like, like allow yourself to be put into a box or a binary or a classification because you know even if you know holding true that these classifications and diagnoses and what have you can can help us and heal us which i fully honor always keep in mind that to be human and to be a person and to have that range means that there are always parts of you that will never fit in that and can defy those definitions and so give yourself that grace, give yourself that freedom and give yourself that kind. That was a strong way to end it. Yeah. But honestly, thank you so much. Well, honestly, we're going to end it off here, but stay tuned for more for our podcast.